Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's one second to four o'clock. Chris did tell me I had two seconds. Thanks, Chris. It's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. Today, Syria and Venezuela. What's happening in Syria and the Venezuelan elections, which will be this Sunday. Fires in Indonesia and the environment, etc., in Timor-Leste. I'll be speaking to Lee Tan, who's been to both places in recent times. And I'll have a second go at Professor Emeritus James Petrus, and he'll also be talking about Syria, also Paris and the Venezuelan elections. But I'm not quite sure where Mr Kevin Healy fits in with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when we face the clash of terrorist bombs and terrorist time bombs. Terrorist bombs in Paris have forced that socialist, socialist Francois hole in the earth to ban warmest terrorists taking to the streets opposing the world's great resource giants, the world's fossils. He, they must be so upset they have to prevent street protests, urging action on the terrorist time bomb facing the whole world, but only because he has the safety of the warmest at heart. Keep them safe from telling the world it is not safe. Leave the solution to the fossils who are the experts in the fossil solution. And to the great leaders, they appoint to make the decision, carry out their instructions. The opposite, sorry, the men in suits will look on the fridges of their deep, meaningful discussions and see a few islanders, Africans, non-white men and a few women in suits calling for action to save their countries literally from the terrorist time bomb. And the men and the few women in suits and the fossil fossils will assure them they have their interests at heart. Indeed, we will lift you backward people out of poverty, this God-given marvel, this miracle, this little black rock of liberation will lift you out of poverty, but sadly, as much as we'd like to and as much as we care for you and empathise with you, sadly, we won't be able to lift you out of the briny when the inevitable occurs, because it would be selfish of you to prevent us from lifting the world's poor out of poverty, from showing how we really care for the world. But rest assured, we will have your best interests at heart right up until you disappear. And our very own Minister for Fossils, Greg Haunt the Greenies, has assured us True Blue Aussie will meet its target of reducing pollution by all of 5% and meeting our Kyoto commitment to increase pollution, which was a pretty responsible commitment, despite some long-haired commie greenie mob using nothing more reliable than facts and figures to claim Greg is pulling the pollution over our eyes, that he is using that Kyoto increase to, well, to put it nicely, the figures. Nonsense, Greg retorted. Watch closely. You put this card here, that card there. Now, that thimble goes there. Are you watching closely? Put that P there. Take the other card from there. Move that thimble. Keep watching. And pick up this card and tell me what it says. Uh, It says you've met your target. There, told you. 
Greg also supported big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull's commitment to innovation, innovation, innovation and innovation to innovation into renewables. So, so how will we go about encouraging renewables over fossils, Greg? Primarily by abolishing those bodies established to support and innovate renewables, backed up by not supporting a global agreement to phase out fossils. The great minds of the hayseed and sheepshit party and the fossil industry itself assure us this will achieve their amb- oh, sorry, our ambitions. And indeed it will. Malcolm said science and innovation would respond to the common good by finding solutions. He alone, in general honest thought and common good to all of them, made one of them. The Bard wrote, just a pity the subject was dead. On that quote, someone or other, or all that quote, someone or other said as the last tree on Easter Island was being axed, the perpetrator would have assured the world science and technology would find an answer, come to the rescue. So there's our solution. Go on polluting to our heart's content and science will solve the problem. Innovation, 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 inundation, inundation. Well, in the lead up to the final inundation, we're being inundated with crap. And while those thousands and thousands of misguided warmers flooded our streets Friday night, real responsible solutions from our biggest polluter, brown coal power plant operator AG Hell on Earth, committed to getting out of destroying the earth by 2048. What, what a selfless commitment, presuming the earth's still around. And all heart, its big supremo Andy Vesey does it, says AG Hell on Earth could get out of coal pollution even faster before 2048 if the government came up with a few trillion dollars to help it, which naturally would come out of our foreign aid budget, preventing our Pacific neighbours sinking quite so quickly. And true quote listener... I am not well enough informed to hold a personal belief in the science of climate change. But if my customers and investors believe it, I have to be responsive. See, good old Andy believes in the science of profit. But he concedes a role for government. After all, if the government is concerned about climate change, I'm happy to take your money. Speaking of flooding, as in the streets Friday, and speaking of being inundated with crap, as bloody huge polluter BHP's flooding now stretches into the Atlantic 700k from the disaster's source, destroying everything in its wake, bloody huge is disputing a UN of the US of the UN of the world report that the sludge is toxic, including minor problems like arsenic. Bloody huge maintaining its line since the spill that there's nothing dangerous in the tailings at all, which, as we said last week, must leave the victims, the homeless, those without potable water, wondering what the damage might look like if it was dangerous. And apparently the thousands of dead fish along the rivers would have just died anyway. Why, a lot of the poisons are natural to the environment, bloody huge polluter said. It actually said that. And on great responsible true blowozies, bit worried about two of the great selfless contributors to what's good for all of us. Resource giant Gina and rag trade retail trillionaire Solly Lulu, so named, well it's obvious, both facing the slot for unpaid. Solly was fined 400 and something on a traffic matter. 
Imagine how that'll affect his bottom line. And given 30 days to pay, poor Gina hit with costs over one of her many litigations, given 24 hours to come up with the ready. Now... That ongoing inquest in Western True Blue Aussie has shown how readily non-fine payers are tossed into the slot. And if they, poor Gina and Solly, felt a bit crook about their new digs, the sorry, the constabulary would tell medical helpers Gina and Solly are faking their illness, pretending to be dead. So let's hope our two dedicated True Blue Aussies can raise the ready and not become the next victim of deaths in custody. They'd have to hold a royal commission into the national scandal of filthy rich whites' deaths in custody. A report prepared by a superannuation fund says caring employers who just forget to pay workers super are robbing workers. Uh, sorry, inadvertently costing workers $2.6 billion a year, real figure, with penalties so severe, caring employers can be fined up to $20. Thankfully, the government has moved to act through Minister for Caring Employers' Profits, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil? They are true, bringing down legislation to reduce the penalties. The only positive is they tell us evil unions should face the same corporate penalties as good caring employers, so at this rate, unions could be a lot better off. Sadly, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sinners had to limit its coverage of climate change, severely limit, due to the other terrorism facing the earth. Jihad, 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 Islam, 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 terror, terror, terror. As Minister for Speaking on Everything, Josh Prydem Islamsburg, attacked the Grand Mufti yet again for saying how dreadful the Paris attack was, but pointing out there is a bit of Islamophobia, a bit of invading and slaughtering and crusading in Islamic countries. How dare the Grand Mufti look for some motive? When Josh and Lord Rupert know the motive is they hate our white, Christian, peace-loving, liberty, freedom and democracy. Just yesterday, Wapping Sin P1 dredged up this former big-time big trained killer, now caring business class party parliamentarian. War hero! See, that proves he's a great person. We all love him. If he hadn't trained, killed all those people he trained, killed, possibly even the odd wedding party, then we wouldn't enjoy the freedom we enjoy today. We'd be under the boots and beards of Afghans, Iraqis, Iranians, Syrians, Palestinians, you name it. It's too awful to contemplate. Islam must change, the train killer war hero said. If only they could be like us. Finally, former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses spoke from his new position as a feather duster in the far, far reaches of the back bench to tell us he would die happy with my achievements as big supremo. No, no, sorry, listener, can't help you. If anyone can think of one achievement and achieving getting rolled doesn't count, do let us know in one word or less. Uh, and even the die happy bit would be a, a few years too late. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for another of his week that was. I'm speaking now with Dr Tim Anderson, who's a lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney and also a member of the group Hands Off Syria. Tim, last time we spoke, it was fairly soon after the agreement between Syria and Russia 
to begin airstrikes against those trying to bring about regime change in Syria by means of destroying the country. A great deal has occurred in the interim. Can you give us an assessment? Overall, militarily, the the situation is still moving very strongly in favour of Syria after some areas had really reached a stalemate, basically. I think I mentioned back then that Syria, contrary to what was being said in a lot of the Western media, Syria controlled most of the major cities on the West Coast. When they talk about ISIS controlling large amounts of territory, they're mainly talking about desert in the east of Syria. But it's also true that certain areas had been held by the the Western-backed Islamists for two or three years, and there wasn't uh, progress. So the Russians have changed all that in the north and the south and the east. There have been advances in all of the major areas in Syria. So militarily, the situation is changing. Of course, everyone's attention was rather distracted by the the Turkish uh, shooting down of a Russian plane, which, um, in many respects, the good side of that is that it brought it out into the open, the role of Turkey, uh, the very strong role of Turkey in supporting all of the Islamist groups, not just IS, but al-Nusra and the others. But Russia is paying a price, isn't it? That's not the only plane that was shot down. I'm thinking of the um, the plane in Egypt. Uh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And it seems that that was a terrorist act too. That, um, uh, Of course, that's mobilised Russia more strongly to, for example, the, the fighter plane on the Turkish border the, the Sinai, the, the tourists that were killed in the in the Sinai, was you know not the responsibility directly of of a state, but the the fighter plane was, uh, as President Putin describes it, a stab in the back because he had some type of an agreement with uh, with the Turkish government, and he would in fact given the coordinates of those planes to the U.S. and the Turkish government, and using those coordinates, that plane was shot down. So politically speaking, there, there was a cost, obviously a, a huge cost for Russia in both of those, but the political import of the, the betrayal over that fighter jet in the north is stronger. And, if, for example, it's led to Russia importing its most advanced air defence system, which Israel was very worried about, effectively would mean that if Syria had control of the S-400 defence system, that there wouldn't be really any possibility of of uh, Israeli overflights into Syria. So that's it's changed the military position quite substantially. Just talk a bit more about Turkey and the relationship with not only Russia, but the, the other countries in the area. Yes, well, Turkey is said to have come a little bit late to the anti-Syria campaign, late by months, I mean, rather than years, because it was the Saudis and still is the Saudis in Qatar and the Gulf monarchies, which the US often calls the moderate Sunni states, anything but moderate, but um, they were the first to fund the Islamist groups, and Turkey, Erdogan's party, which is has a very strong Muslim Brotherhood link, saw itself as a leading player in the region, basically, and they then, of course, were responsible for the, the large-scale introduction of foreign jihadists into Syria in early 2012, after, effectively, the, the Syrian jihadists had been expelled from home over the uh, the winter of 2011-2012 in Syria. And since then, of course, it's been the running sore of Syria that that huge northern border with Turkey has been the conduit for foreign fighters and arms and so on. And also, of course, um, as has been noted in, in recent news reports, the conduit for Syrian stolen oil being being uh, transported back and resold from, from Turkey uh, into Europe. So Turkey's 
role has been very important. Turkey also worked with, has been working with the Saudis and Qatar to create this thing they call the Army of Conquest, Jaish al-Fateh, which is really a combination of Jabhat al-Nusra, the official al-Qaeda, and the other groups. They're the ones that did sent the um, ostensibly different to ISIS, but really effectively in league with them. They're the ones that sent the invasion force into the north west part of Syria in April this year. And the the Western governments have been trying to sort of hide the fact that that's an al-Qaeda group too, just like ISIS. And, you know, they call Jaish al-Fateh the, the moderate Islamists or whatever, but they're mainly comprised of what uh, was called Jabhat al-Nusra. And that's where the conflict between, you know, the US criticising Russia for bombing what they say are opposition figures. Well, it's another version of al-Qaeda, basically. So Turkey has been important for sustaining uh, and supplying, uh, including through their military as well as their intelligence, those groups there. And, and the shooting down of the plane in that little salient of Turkey that pokes down into Syria, you know, where supposedly the Russian plane on the Turkish version of things um, entered for a few seconds into Turkey, that's really the hot spot because effectively the Russians and the Syrian ground forces. Let's remember the Syrian ground forces are reinforced from Lebanon, from Iraq and from Iran now, so there is a very strong regional ground force following up this Russian presence. It would be wrong to say that the Russian air power alone is, is making the advances. Uh, but that's pushed up now up against the Turkish border, so that's where the that's why there's such friction uh, in that point at this time. And what's in it for Turkey to go against Assad? Is it to get into the EU? Is that his prize? Uh, not so much the EU. Um, that's probably blocked off um, to them, but they are in NATO, of course. But really what most people say is that, that Erdogan has a type of megalomania and ambition, let's say, to, they say, to be the new caliph, you know, the new Ottoman sort of role, whereas, the, in other words, a Muslim Brotherhood leader, that would be the main figure leading the region. Part of that dream disappeared when the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt was, was kicked out by a, by a military coup. But there is that aim, it's not stated as such by, by the, the Turkish leadership, of course, but they're trying to reclaim that type of, uh, if not a caliphate, a, a Muslim Brotherhood region that's dominated by, uh, by Turkey, by Ankara. And the Kurdish people in the area? Well, of course, they're, they're the, um, the major enemies of the Turkish state because they're the largest Kurdish population in the region. And um, that big flood of refugees recently was largely a result of the pre-election crackdown on, on Kurdish groups by the Turkish government. Still going on, by the way. You may have noticed that a prominent Kurdish lawyer was murdered, apparently by police, uh, quite openly. And now there's mass arrests of... Um, of army and journalists who are exposing the transport of weapons to ISIS and the other groups um, in Syria. So there's a huge internal conflict going on within Turkey now, despite the fact that Erdogan somehow managed to regain control of the parliament um, just a few weeks ago. But since then, there's been absolute turmoil within, within Turkey. I'd imagine there'd be a bit of economic turmoil in Turkey too. Yes, even more so by the fact that Russia's now imposed sanctions on Turkey and Russia is, the, I think, the second trading partner, but the main trading partner for gas, which is really important to people of Turkey and particularly in, um, in a winter coming up. You know, I think 60% of all of their heating fuel comes from Russia and um, if that's at risk, I'm not sure to what extent that's at risk, but there are some quite extensive 
sanctions by Russia now, including future mega projects like a gas pipeline and a nuclear power plant. So that economic relationship at least has been temporarily damaged, and that's uh, adding to the to the pressures on Turkey. And tourism from Russia to Turkey? That also. I think the sanctions don't take place until New Year, but there's a, a warning off there, and that, that's indeed a big source of income. Uh, Turkey generally depends uh, a lot on, on tourism, but Russian tourism is quite a big factor in that. I'm just wondering how much international criticism there was of the recent elections in Turkey. Yeah, not much, because most of the international criticism comes from the English language press, and they don't criticise their allies, typically. You see, the big focus at the moment now is to is to criticise Venezuela and demand all sorts of observers in there, but you don't have observers in you know Canada or Chile or a whole range of countries that don't preoccupy the US, so that sort of focus on elections, you're right, it didn't happen with the, with the Turkish elections. I'm rather surprised how Erdogan's party managed to reclaim what they'd lost in the previous elections, um, but not much of that was reflected in the Western media, that's for sure. Looking at the refugees coming from Syria, it amazes me when journalists and others continue to say, well, the Middle Eastern kingdoms aren't taking any refugees. They're not really nations, the Middle Eastern, the, the, the Gulf yeah, monarchy. And also the people who are, are fleeing are Shia mainly, are they? No, no, I mean, really... Um, in Turkey, a lot of them were, were Kurds and Arabs from the north, of, uh, the north of Syria. The big exodus that was happening a few months ago was really a lot of people that were based in Turkey and fleeing. In other words, they were fleeing a second time, basically. A lot of them were Syrians, but uh, they were fleeing a second time from the fighting between the Turkish government and the Kurds. So that young boy that was famously photographed dead on the beach was a, from a, a Syrian-Kurdish family that had been located in um, in Turkey for some time, but with the fighting with the Kurdish armed groups and the Turkish government, um, those people have had to flee too. In the north, um, there's a lot of Arab people that are affected too. There's a lot of these, they call them Kurdish areas. Remember, they're actually not really all Kurdish people there. They're a mixture of Kurds and Arabs. Sometimes there's more Arabs than, than Kurds. Looking at the role of Australia and the other NATO countries, what have they believed they've achieved over the the time that they've been bombing and now of course we have the US admitting that they've got troops in Syria. There's two things there isn't there that I don't know that Australia's has any significant independent policy on those conflicts in the Middle East really I think. um, They do what they're told. Pretty much they do what they're told Um, the exception is mainly in the region there are some independent things Australia has done in in the, the Asia Pacific region but not in the Middle East. I think that that's really... Australia has been the most loyal of all of the... Um, whether it's Labor or Conservative administrations, that really pretty much they've, they've taken their cue from Washington. So there's not much independent to be seen there. I don't, and Except perhaps a little bit of conservatism about the role that they might play in Syria, which is clearly illegal compared to the one in Iraq where there was an invitation. But uh, the broader question you were asking was... What have they achieved? They've achieved a foothold in the eastern part of Syria and the western part of Iraq, uh, and that's a problem for both governments now. I mean, I think one of the biggest shifts in recent times, and perhaps since we last spoke, is the fact that the government of Iraq, who many people would have assumed is just a puppet and has no political will, or they, they've adopted the line that's come from Washington for the last few years that it's a sectarian Shia administration. I hear left people, left western left people saying this too, I think it's quite false. One, that Baghdad is sectarian in that sort of way, and two, that 
they have no independent will. They've shown significant independent will for some time, and that's really why uh, ISIS or the ISI was created in the first place in Iraq, because the US was worried about uh, Baghdad getting too close to Iran. That's happened now, and also um, Baghdad has got close to Syria. The, the natural thing that these neighbouring states are developing much better neighbourly relations, basically. There are a lot of Iraqis now, maybe a lot of them are Shia, but they're Iraqi volunteers in Syria now, in Aleppo, for example, fighting ISIS and the other, the other allied groups there. So the decision of the Russians and the Syrians to place their intelligence centre for fighting ISIS in Baghdad was quite significant. Now you see that there's increasingly more military cooperation between Iraq and Russia and Syria and Iran compared to Iraq with the US. But the US has its foothold in Iraq there, of course, in a number of different ways. And in Syria, they have, you mentioned that they've got troops on the ground, supposedly a small amount of training troops in the Kurdish areas in the northeast of Syria. The worry is that they might try and establish a presence in Raqqa too, which has been more or less the headquarters of ISIS in Syria, where effectively the US has allowed ISIS to attack Syria, but has shepherded them away from the, the Kurdish areas because the Kurds, the Kurdish leadership effectively have had a, a relatively collaborative relationship with the US. They're, they're really using the, the Kurdish factor as a tool to keep their foot in the region there. So I think that um, they've had their foot in the Kurdish area from the Turkish side. There's a tension there, of course, because the Turks are very, the Turkish government's very anti-Kurd and the US is trying to use them. But the big competition, I think, at the moment is the push for Raqqa, that the US would like to maintain a toehold in Raqqa, the biggest uh, eastern city in Syria, in the Syrian desert there. And the Russians and the Syrians, on the other hand, are pushing towards Raqqa now. It seems like they may take back Palmyra in the next couple of weeks, and they'll be pushing on towards Raqqa. They've been bombing Raqqa for some time now. And Raqqa is a relatively large city, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, but it's been controlled by ISIS. So there's competition now, really, which is sort of a bit below the surface because the Russians have maintained a very clever diplomatic game trying to have agreements with all of the anti-Syrian powers, uh, not least Israel, Turkey, that one's more, pretty much fallen apart, but they, they have some levels of cooperation with the US in terms of preventing clashes between their aircraft, and they now have a, uh, um, Russia now has a, a type of an agreement with France, which is rather interesting because France is trying to play some sort of third way role in the region to avenging the, the terrorist attacks in Paris there. And, Putin is working fairly cleverly to try and get Hollande on his side, but Hollande is sort of playing some sort of role in between the US and, and Russia. I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson, who's a lecturer in political economy at Sydney University. And what about Israel and, and Syria? Because they've still got the, the area that they've, they took after one of the wars. Hmm. Not a very stable relationship between those two countries. No, it's a formal state of war still, yeah. and, and was, was the reason why, one of the reasons why, you know, Syria had maintained an authoritarian system, because they were at war, they were being subverted by Israel, and they had insurrections and Muslim Brotherhood, and this has all come back in recent times. Well, the Israelis had a bit of a, a free run in the early years of the conflict, because they've kept their head down, because everyone in the region hates them, basically, because of their constant ethnic cleansing and grabbing territory from Palestine, from Syria also, as you mentioned. But the Russian factor has turned that around. First of all, there is a type of an agreement that 
the Russian president made with Israel to keep Israel out of the conflict, basically, you know, in the name of protecting Israel, basically. But the Russian presence is, has been down in the south too, where because those uh, Islamist groups have been coming out of Jordan, coming, uh, being resupplied out of the precisely the occupied Golan area of Syria by the Israeli forces that's become very public and then patched up in Israeli hospitals and sent back into Syria. And so there's been a lot of pressure in that southern part of Syria around Dara and around the, some of the Druze areas down there. So the Russian bombing has taken place down there and there's been advances there recently going right up to the, the occupied border. In fact, apparently there's um, Russian overflights of that occupied area as well. The Israelis haven't been stupid enough to shoot down any Russian planes there yet. And the relationship between Russia and Israel seems to be holding in a way that the one with Russia and Turkey did not, basically. I mean, it's a clever move by Putin because in any sort of war, you don't want to be fighting several enemies at once. So, so Putin has tried to establish relatively good relations, even if they're full, with, full of contradictions, with as many players as he can while he helps the Syrians wipe out the, the Islamist groups. Just who are the Islamist groups now? We're coming up to the end of 2015. Yeah, so at the end of this year, the Islamist groups, of course, ISIS is the one that's grabbed a lot of attention and has been the, and is probably the biggest one, but it also plays a type of function in allowing the US to continue its myth that there is some big gulf between ISIS and the other armed groups, anti-Syrian groups, who are all Islamists, many of whom have been involved in beheadings from the beginning, beheadings, mass killings of um, civilians, you know, they want us to forget that it was the Free Syrian Army that was chopping people's heads off and throwing government workers from the tops of buildings and so on several years ago. The, on the Turkish side, they were re-sort uh, re of constituted into this group called Jaish al-Fateh, the Army of Conquest, which was sent in, sent in, in April this year into northern Syria. That's a combination of the Islamist remnants of the Free Syrian Army and uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, the largely foreign al-Qaeda group. In the northeast of Damascus, you've had the Saudi-backed um, Army of Islam, or, or Islamic Front, which is also now being pushed back from the, that northeast part of country Damascus. And in the south, there's been that same sort of, similar sort of coalition of the remnants of the Islamist FSA groups with Jabhat al-Nusra and the Islamic State is also there. The Islamic State has come from the east across now to be into the um, into the Lebanese side of the um, the Kalamun Mountains there too, and doing occasional attacks uh, in Lebanon too, as we saw with the the suicide bombs in Beirut just some weeks back, around the same time as the the Paris bombing. So, effectively, they're cooperating in most respects. There has been recent a resurgence of fighting between those sorts of groups. But effectively, in most respects, the, the Free Syrian Army, Jabhat al-Nusra, the Army of Conquest, all of these, ISIS, have cooperated much more than, than they've fought. Of course, they try and maintain their own territory and have their flag there, but when it suits them, they, they work together against the Syrian government. And, and, of course, the US allows that to happen. And the funding is coming from? Mainly from the, the Gulf monarchies, uh, Saudi and Qatar, who are also the main recruiters. They have their international agents coming to other countries, including to Australia, to recruit people and pay for their fares, pay them a salary. The Islamist fighters in, in Syria these days, I've done some polling with Syrians on this, the average soldiers are paid about three times more than the Syrian army soldiers, which is the complete reverse to any sort of normal guerrilla idea of guerrilla warfare. You know, normally you've got professional 
professional soldiers on one side and highly motivated volunteers on the other. In this case, they're paid a lot more. A lot's been made of the oil sales, which could amount to billions of dollars, but the better analysts have said that the oil sales are probably the minor, still the minor part of the funds that ISIS gets because this recruiting, the training, the logistical access to transport and weapons and so on is something you, even if you've got a lot of money, you can't just buy that stuff. You need the, the cooperation of states. And the Saudis, Qatar and Turkey have remained the... Um, there are some other minor players, but the Saudis, Qatar and Turkey, the, Turkey, the, the regional powers in that respect, uh, remain the main funders and, um, and those that provide the arms to all of the Islamist groups. What's your explanation of why the terror attack happened in Paris on the 13th of November? I couldn't say definitively why it happened. You could say that it's a type of blowback from the type of terrorism that France has been exporting to Syria. Undoubtedly, many people have made the point, and not least Bashar al-Assad in, in Syria, that France is now experiencing what it's been feeding to Syria for a number of years. But from the point of view of the motivation for it, it's actually quite rare for these Islamist groups to attack Western countries, Western peoples. It's very rare, despite the fact that people talk about 9-11 in the US. Virtually all of the activity of the Islamist groups has been on Muslim and Arab populations, basically. And many people have made this point, for example. ISIS has never attacked Israel, for example. They talk about being pro-Palestinian occasionally and anti-Israel, but they haven't attacked Israel, and Israel is very relaxed about their relationship with ISIS. Indeed, ISIS, as well as Jabhat al-Nusra and the others, have been supported by the Israeli military. They've got these triage points along along the uh, the border there, which has been monitored by the UN, and the UN has reported on the relationship between the Islamist group and the, and the Israeli Defence Forces. Can I turn to Venezuela for the last few minutes, Tim? The elections are this weekend. Yeah. Many people are pretty certain that there could be an adverse vote for the Maduro government. These are National Assembly elections, remember, yes. and the problem that the Maduro government faces, it's not going to change the Maduro government per se because this is a presidential system, right? It's like the US, it's like congressional elections. So if for the first time in 15 years, and as you say, it's quite on the cards because of the serious economic problems in Venezuela, the Chavistas or the PSUV coalition loses to the opposition, it'll be the first time in 15 years, but it's like... Democrats losing the Congress in the US, that doesn't change the Obama, didn't change the Obama government. So there'll be a conflict between the legislative body and the presidential body, which is the dominant one in, a, in the presidential system in Venezuela. That's quite possible because there are these intractable problems. There have been a number of attempts by the Maduro government to deal with what's effectively focuses around a problem with their foreign exchange and their inflation and the inability to contain or put it in other words the fact that the the bad foreign exchange policy has been fomenting a black market the government has blamed the strong economic forces who that back the opposition for conducting a sort of economic war the opposition has said that the government has been you know economically mismanaging things and as one author said recently it's actually some sort of mixture of the two basically and some of even some of uh, the Chavistas People on the Chavistas' side are upset with the fact that the government has not effectively dealt with this foreign exchange, black market, inflation, fulcrum that they're more or less involved in at the moment. So because of that, because, say for example, the price, the black market price and the official price for the Bolivar 
Fuerte, supposedly, is um, about 10, 10 times different. You know, 10, 10 on the one side, 100 on another. It's a massive incentive for a black market, and that means there's shortages, there's hoarding, there's smuggling across the border, there's all sorts of things going on. And the government has tried for a few years to recognise the problem, but hasn't really got a handle on it. And so that's hurting people. That's the risk that they may lose the, the majority. And that'll be create a lot of turmoil within Venezuela. Of course, this is what the US wants, and the US has got its own destabilisation programs going on, and we'll be trying to delegitimise the elections if the Chavistas win and, and strengthen them against the Maduro presidency if the, if the opposition gains control of the, um, the National Assembly. How serious has been the violence leading up to this election? There's been a lot of violence, not in terms of the violence we're talking about in the Middle East, but there's been, for the last two years, really a fair amount of direct destabilisation linked into those economic problems, which um, in, in many respects that instability, that insecurity is the next factor after the economic problems, you know, upsetting people because um, although not a lot of people are being killed, but there is, there is significant violence and it's politically engaged you know this is why they've got this type of political prisoner thing one of the opposition leaders lopez is in jail at the moment and there's a big campaign about him he's in jail for um fomenting uh, political murders basically there's a serious criminal sort of link to the opposition's involvement in fomenting problems but on the other hand there is an underlying level of violence which hasn't been overcome socially uh, which is also really disconcerting that, that, that is to say there are drug gangs there are kidnapping gangs and so on and these have political links too so that's the secondary factor after the the economic problems of this massive massive black market foreign foreign currency and, and uh, inflation storm which has created shortages and hardships for a lot of people on the other side you've got these very strong social programs like the housing program which is pushing towards a million new houses for families you know so there's some still substantial social advances which the opposition is going to try and undermine. They don't reject them politically, but everyone knows who looks at it carefully that a lot of those missions would be seriously in trouble, the educational missions, the health missions, the housing and so on, if the opposition were to gain the presidency as well as the, the National Assembly. And of course there's a fair bit of US involvement with the opposition parties. Always the, the US is from the from the very beginning, you know, through the attempted coups and so on, the US has been the major player there. In fact, the, the role of the US in Latin America generally means that these sort of political conflicts end up far worse than they would otherwise be. There are always players in Latin American politics who are going to take advantage of the fact that the US will back them up, not just with funds, but morally recognise them and so on. And, and undermine their political opponents. So that really creates a, a vicious cycle in Latin American politics generally. It's one that was actually short-circuited to a fair degree by the late Hugo Chavez when he created these big regional organisations, uh, UNASUR and CELAC and the ALBA, for example. See, at the moment, with the, the question of the Venezuelan elections, let's say the, the Chavistas win, still possible. But if they win, the US will have a big campaign to delegitimise those elections using the institutions of the Organization of American States, which Washington dominates. But there's another power there, and that's called UNASUR, that in any of the South American countries now, when there is destabilization, uh, the foreign ministers of the Union of South American Nations 
comes in and does more or less you know the honest broker role which the washington dominated organization of american states did in the past so you've now got these two competing currents of international bodies when it comes to legitimizing or delegitimizing elections and to some extent washington power has been reduced there and and whoever wins the elections in venezuela this weekend that will persist and the legacy of Chavez will persist in that UNASUR will be will have a stronger role in that situation than the the organization of American states. Is there a danger that there would be impeachment? Is that true or is that just flagging? No, um, the, the constitution that Chavez brought in in 1999, um, when it was, he initiated it, but the people voted it in, allows for what you call impeachment um, of any public official at any time. There was a recall referendum. They used that constitution against Chavez in 2004 and failed. In other words, if you get sufficient numbers on a, on a petition, you can um, demand a recall referendum, basically. I think in, in terms of the president, there had to be 100,000. No, it was more than that. could have been more than 100,000 signatures. And then that forces a recall referendum on the president or any public official. So they could do that now if they wanted to. It's not really to do with the national elections here. Okay, Tim, we'll, we'll have to wait till next week to find out. Okay, Jan, thanks Th- for that. Thanks very much. And we will have to wait till next week. That's Dr Tim Anderson, who's a senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney and one of the leading hands in the group called Hands Off Syria. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time is 4.41. You could be listening 8.55 digital 3cr 855 on your computer 3cr is streaming or you can be podcasting this for another time so have a look on the webpage 3cr.org.au join friends of the earth's anti-nuclear and clean energy collective for in terra a fun and creative way to contribute to a future that is renewable not radioactive in Terra is an art auction featuring beautiful artworks from local and national artists. The majority of funds raised will support the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, which brings together Aboriginal and civil society groups working toward a nuclear-free future and to leave uranium in the ground. So come along to Hogan Gallery, 310 Smith Street, Collingwood, on Wednesday, 9th of December. Artworks on view from 5pm. Auction starts at 7 more information, email ace at foe.org.au. Friends of the Earth are a 3CR supporter. Cancel your plans for Friday, December 11 and come to the Tote Hotel in Collingwood for the fundraising event of the season in support of 3CR Community Radio and Wire Women's Information. Melbourne bands Habits, Johnny Telephone, Vacuum and Mollusk will destroy the main stage with Brisbane's Brainbow helping you dance the night away upstairs after the show. Doors are at 8.30 and tickets are $10, only available on the night. For more information, visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. This is a comment from... An environmental journalist. I've often wondered how the media would respond when eco-apocalypse struck. I pictured the news programs producing brief, sensational reports while failing to explain why it was happening or how it might be stopped. 
Then they would ask their financial correspondents how the disaster affected share prices before turning to the sport. As you can probably tell, I don't have a notion of faith in the industry for which I work. What I did not expect was that they would ignore it. And the disaster is the burning of peatlands in Indonesia. I'm speaking with environmentalist Lee Tan. Not a new phenomenon, is it, Lee Tan? No. In many peatland, when in the dry season, they do burn. But in the case of Indonesia, also part of Malaysia, there has been a lot of human intervention in a negative ways. In Indonesia particularly, in uh, central Kalimantan where there was there had been very severe burning since the 1996-97 because at that time Suharto was in the last kind of leg of his uh, dictatorial reign and he had this mad plan to open up one million hectares of peatland to turn it into the rice bowl of Indonesia, in the paddy fields, basically, when actually in those peatland, there's been the indigenous Dayak people living there for decades or even centuries. And they learn how to manage the peatland. They have special deep canals to break the landmass so that fires doesn't travel across. And they do not drain the peat. But Suharto went in and uh, paid uh, many of his croonies to open up something like over 450 kilometers of canals that drained the pit. And then um, he also sent his uh, friends or whoever to lock the pit forests of commercial timber they could sell. So as a result, the ecology was totally stuffed. And since then... Whenever there has been a particularly you know, dry year or hot year, which we're now getting more often, you get this massive, uncontrolled underground peat fire that burns for a month or over, sending serious haze throughout Southeast Asia in Indonesia, and it's taking lives of young children, sick people and elderly with very weak lungs. And did Suharto get his rice bowl? No, not at all. Not a single grain of rice was grown, and that was a tragedy. Because peatland is very acidic. Only certain part of the peat forest or peatland can grow certain kind of rice. And the Dayak people know about it, and they've been doing that. They've been growing some kind of rice, but not every part of the forest can be grow, uh, turned into a rice uh, paddy field. So, no, it was a total failure in terms of rice growing. It's an ecological disaster and catastrophe that hasn't, you know, been able to fix despite many different international donors, international NGOs and environmental groups who went in with the good intention but didn't have the courtesy to consult the Dayak. And because of that, millions and billions of dollars have been poured into the area no no good result at all. Today, because of the oil palm expansion, the Indonesian government has been giving out concession, oil palm concession to companies. Who had the idea of putting in palm oil? Oh, many of the companies are doing that because the peatland, sadly, when drained, can grow oil palm. Um, and that's a disaster. 
and that explains why in Sumatra the peat is being drained as well because of the oil palm expansion. So in Kalimantan, it was because of this mad rice project. In Sumatra, it is mainly because of oil palm. What about West Papua? Oh yes, they have peatland as well.、Uh, it would be also the push for oil palm. The government has another huge. This is the current government, a huge agricultural, some sort of integrated agriculture, whatever, whatever project that's going to again open up huge. Area of lands, forest, and land that belongs to indigenous people in West Papua, into large-scale plantations of all kinds. Just talk a bit more about the impact on the people. What is in that haze? I have read several articles,、um, scientific articles. They actually have very, very toxic substances, particulates that are very fine, even carbon monoxide. They must have. Picked it up from area where there's lots of、uh, motor vehicles and you know emission, because it's the wind that blows the haze across. So when they mix with the pollutions locally produced, they become very toxic, basically air, which people breathe in, and it can kill because of that, or and it can cause long-term damages to your respiratory system and also particularly to your lung. And what are they doing in Indonesia to protect the people? <clears throat> It was actually quite sad and pathetic. They haven't actually got to the cause of the the root cause of the problems, and and if they have, they haven't actually done it properly. I was in Central Kalimantan several times from between 2010 to 2013,、uh, and I'm still in regular contact with the people, with the indigenous Dayak people there, and also the Friends of the Earth Central Kalimantan group. They have given recommendation as to what the government should be doing. Firstly, recognize the land rights of the Dayak people,、uh, work with them to repair, to maybe block some of the canals, to re- repair and restore the peatland. But none of that has been taken up, and they did not even bother to support the people who's been severely affected by the haze. It was civil society and individuals who, and also the diet community, who mobilized mobilize themselves to get masks, to get oxygen canister, and other protective medicine or whatever to cope with the haze. Basically, for two months, they're living in very toxic environment. Has there been any estimate of how this haze is cl- is affecting climate change? The emission, the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emission from the haze, has been one of the more serious contributor to climate change. As to how serious it is, it is more serious than all of the motor vehicles emissions around the world, and that's really massive. And I would also like to add, in terms of remedy, Australia actually spent thirty million between two thousand and nine and maybe twenty fourteen to try and fix the fire in Central Kalimantan, and it was a total failure as well. Precisely because, you know, our consultants were too arrogant to listen to the diet people or the NGOs. What about the ecology and the the, the native plants and also the,、oh, the native animals? Oh, what, what animals、yeah. are, are endangered? Orangutan is the 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 kind of iconic fauna that people pay a lot of attention to. There's many types of monkeys and you know that's 
that sort of animals that are quite typical in a tropical rainforest or peatland country. I don't think there's been proper study on the flora and the fauna, but peatland are very special and they are carbon storage. So when we drained it, it actually become a environmental disaster. And also their unique plants, orchids and what have you, that grows in peatland. There hasn't been, I have not come across any good ecological study of peatland yet, but there is a very well-protected peatland in central Kalimantan. It's quite small, but it's a really important peat area. Just amazing that the figure I read was 127,000 fires have been lit. Yes, some of the fires were deliberately led by plantation companies to clear their land. They like the ashes and the charcoal because it gives natural fertilizer to their palm, at least for a year or two. But, you know, they're quite short-sighted in the sense that they don't seem to realize that their palm can also burn in that situation. There's all this talk about compensation. So what will happen is that the government will end up compensating oil palm company but not necessarily the diet farmers. What about the people in Singapore, in Malaysia, in in the Philippines? They're being affected as well. Oh, yes, very severely. Malaysia, Singapore, the Philippines. I think Singapore and Malaysia particularly were badly affected. And for a period of between September, October, some part of August, people were going around wearing masks. So, and there's been warning school were closed because the pollution level was so severe. And uh, people have been asked not to go outdoor unless they have to because um, of the danger of being exposed to this hazardous haze. And it really severely affects both the quality of life of the people living in these countries and also the economy and normal activities of people in those countries. Surely it can't go on, though. It shouldn't be continued. In fact, it should have been stopped. Proper solutions should have been found. But I, this is something which frustrates those of us who really care. Why aren't they listen to the local people? Why aren't they put money where it's going to make a difference? It's typical of um, so-called development aid, which actually, you know, they, they, in name they sound good, but in practice they really just another form of imperialism that kind of undermine local governance, local effort, and not building from that to improve the situation and, and to get a good both social, economic, and environmental outcome. I'm totally disillusioned with the whole aid industry. It's no longer a so-called, not even, I don't even like the word charity, but, you know, least of all an empowering effort to try and help our neighbour. There hasn't been any international law or legal framework where they can actually take through the UN or something to try and resolve this transboundary pollution issue. Locally, I know the local NGOs, like especially Wahi or Friends of the Earth Indonesia has been campaigning very hard. The diet community has been getting organised every year, trying to campaign very hard as well. The Indonesian government remained very much influenced by the big corporations, unfortunately. I guess so is our own government here in Australia. 
Uh, and that's where the problem lies, because they would listen to the plantation companies first before they take any advice from anyone else. It, it seems so difficult, but so easy. But you think there'd be pressure coming from those countries to the north, though, wouldn't you, to, to do something? No. <laughs> the irony is when they actually dig down to the, the truth on the ground, many of the companies originally came from Malaysia and Singapore. You know, again, the corporations, they compromise because they, they all have something to do with it. I know there's palm oil plantations in many countries of the world. Are any of them as bad as what's happening in Indonesia, or is this the worst? I think in Indonesia, because of the weak environmental governance particularly, and the corruption, and the weakness within the forestry department or ministry particularly, the standard is bad. There's no control. Even the logging concession or the oil palm concession has been awarded for the same area, sometimes in multiple times. Whoever pay most Whoever has the most power gets to put in their palm. Well, looking at another much smaller country, and this is Timor-Leste, what's the situation there in terms of the environmental protection? Quite weak in some areas, strong in others, depending on where we're talking about and who is involved. At the community level, there are good things and bad things. There's been good community tourism ventures, facilitated by Friends of the Earth, Timor-Leste, Haburas Foundation, uh, in three sites. Some sites are functional and other sites needs a lot more support. In terms of law, they do have law to protect mangroves, significant areas of conservation values or cultural values. It is a new country. They're learning. Uh, some of their practices aren't very state-of-the-art or you know, of best practice. Uh, I think my concern is uh, democracy, whether or not ordinary people, citizens, civil society, whether they they have access to democratic processes. It is eroding and it is quite scary for a small country that has gone through so much. There's been an element of hidden fear amongst people to challenge certain bad projects because some people of influence are involved in it, they are too afraid. And what are some of those bad projects? I would say some of the oil and gas, the Okusi development project, which is under the former Prime Minister Maria Katiri. There's a particularly bad land grab project near Delhi that has some backing from uh, former Prime Minister Shanana Gushmal. And that project is, is actually owned by... Timorese diasporas who lives in Darwin, who's also grabbing another Aboriginal heritage site in Darwin. In Darwin, they're going to turn it into a light industrial area, even though it was awarded as it was one of the first awarded uh, heritage sites under the Whitlam government to the Larakia people in Darwin. In Timor-Leste, he's grabbed so many tracts of land in rather pristine area, mangroves, kind of urban hills with the pretext that he's going to build this resort called Pacific Resorts. But so far what we've seen is he's put up fences, prevent people from access, accessing those resources which are meant to be public. And he's also bulldozed the hillside that will cause severe erosion and some of which are already severely eroding. 
and it is really illegal because catchment area protected, mangrove area protected. Nobody seems to be able to stop him. Some of the civil societies are too scared to challenge that project because of the links with some powerful people in the government. And then there is a supply base project in Swai,、uh, in the southern coastal district of Swai. Again, it's oil and gas, you know, big oil and gas corporations, and their influence on the government. And Timor is almost hundred percent dependent on oil and gas. And that's the big problem, isn't it? It is a big problem. And of course, you know, the Timor Gap issues, where Australia is still claiming marine boundary against international convention. Whether I like, we like oil and gas development, it is still unjust. You know, a rich country, Australia, shouldn't be claiming marine boundary. That's not acceptable under international convention. And the Okusi development project is very much a top-down project. So much money is spent building an international airport, building all kinds of infrastructure, which we would question. You know, where's the demand? Is that going to lead to economic? Outcome is the investment necessary in light of the poverty, the lack of infrastructure in other parts of Timor, and also there's been very little consultation at the local level. There's been a lot of objection from local community as well. What's happening with small-scale farming? The strength is in small-scale organic farming. There's been no support to help the market or、uh, process their food,、uh, access food produce. When you know logically that would be the first intervention in a proactive and, and positive way, but it hasn't been like that. In every effort to try and push the old-fashioned green revolution type agriculture, which is very sad, bringing in chemicals, yes, and maybe even GMOs and what have you, and taking farmland away from small farmers, trying to turn them into something big and. Do they have the road system where they can get their produce to markets? This is another controversial area which has been criticised by many people. Some of the roads in the rural areas have been resurfaced several times, whereas some roads in the rural area has never been touched since the Indonesian left, when they could have, you know, improved it very easy. Well, quite easily actually. Yes, there have been two major road projects. Maybe one, maybe two. The road from Delhi right to the border of Indonesia, and then another one is the road up to the highland of Mobisi. Now that's a World Bank funded project. That's probably one of the first loan projects for Timor, so they have to pay it back. Apart from that, the road to the east has been left basically the same bad state. Since Indonesian left, and that road is actually quite crucial because there's been many there's many rural community living in the eastern part. What about access to education for the children and health small health centres? Are they th- operating? Okay, from the health perspective, the the thing that the Timorese government did right before was sending people to Cuba. To learn about primary health care, to learn about health care with. Minimal equipment and access to drugs and so on and so forth. That's been very successful. There's been many Cuban-trained doctors in almost every single rural area. And of course, the Cuban doctors came to Timor 
as well. Yes. Earlier on, they were Cuban doctors who were placed in remote places, and I met many of them, and you know, they definitely have made some difference to rural health. But sanitation and water, a lot of effort and a lot of work still needed. The original strategic plan of the Timor, Timorese government has renewable energy you know, as a component that will supply power, I think was up to 50%. That was ditched during the Shanana Gushmal uh, regime. Why? No reason, except that he probably got uh, persuaded by the oil and gas industry and the dirty coal. Oh, they didn't know use coal, but they use a lot of diesel. But the new prime minister has revived at least the biomass energy commitment, which is a good thing. I, I think, you know, Timo is, I see Timo at the moment is at a crossroad. If the world turned more into proactive climate change effort, it can have influence on a small country like Timo Leste. But if we continue now the business as usual path, then small country like Timo Leste will suffer greatly. What would you like to see? I like to see definitely, you know, strong commitment from governments, from the Paris Earth, uh, the the climate change uh, meeting. This is very important. We've already passed 400 parts per million in terms of carbon dioxide concentration. So it is critical. I would say that Paris will come up with something, but I'm not sure how strong it will be. <laughs> Nobody knows really. Yes, and I think we also need to turn away from that whole scare campaign type of thing, you know, terrorism, Muslim, whatever, all that sort of stuff, because it will also have influence. It's already have influence in Timor where people are so scared of uh, repercussion, violent repercussion. They are afraid of having violence repeated. India attempt to try and keep peace. They are not speaking out. And they're not speaking up on issues that concerns them that will have impact on their future. And that's quite worrying. And that's environmentalist Lee Tan. And on the program next week, Lee will be talking about issues relating to her home country, Malaysia. It's five minutes past five. Freeways, Papua, give him more freedom. You're all invited to the Sampari Art Exhibition and Sale, organised by the Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office at the ACU Gallery on Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. The Sampari Exhibition will also include a host of exciting events, including poetry, literature, the environment and film between December 4th and 13th. For more information, go to dfat.federalrepublicofwestpapua.org or call Bronwyn on 0413-988-280. The Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office is a 3CR supporter. the Friends of the Earth Perry Street Festival on December the 5th. There'll be food, craft, plants, cakes, vintage, bric-a-brac and community stalls. And heaps of live music including Your Boy Bangs, Drongos, Tiny Giants, Hannah Maru, CHWH, Seth Rees, Johnny Murphy and Pugwash. The Social Studio will also be having a fashion event. 
It's heaps of fun, so get on down to Perry Street, next door to Friends of the Earth, on Saturday, December the 5th at 10am. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. For almost two decades, the socialist governments of first Chavez and later Maduro have won 14 out of the 15 elections in Venezuela. The next are scheduled for December 6th and there are rumblings that the congressional elections will be very close. This morning I rang Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus in New York and put this proposition to him. It's very clear that this is an extremely hard-fought election and Venezuela has been very badly hit by the collapse of oil prices and that has affected the uh, government's capacity to support the uh, subsidies on food and housing and health and education. Nevertheless, the government has continued these programs as best it can except that it's finding enormous difficulties in several regards. First of all, the uh, supermarkets are not cooperating by creating artificial scarcities, as well as they're appearing certain transportation difficulties through the inefficiencies of the uh, state transport system. So this has caused some substantial shortages, which has deteriorated popular support and uh, created long lines. The second problem that the government faces is the uh, constant harassment by the United States and its uh, funding uh, through uh, non-governmental organizations of the opposition. I think all these factors are leading one to uh, assume that this is going to be a very close election in which it's a possibility the government will lose its majority in parliament, in which case there'll be a uh, gridlock between the uh, executive branch controlled by the uh, President Maduro of the uh, Venezuelan Socialist Party and the Congress controlled by the right wing and and directed toward uh, subverting the executive, probably moving toward the referendum, which can impeach the president. So we're into a very turbulent time. Washington is doing everything possible to subvert the uh, democratic process at the same time that it accuses the government of uh, being authoritarian and claiming that there might be electoral fraud. I I think this latter gesture on the part of Washington is essentially to uh, contest a defeat. That is, if the government wins the election, they will call fraud. If they win the election, of course, they'll move towards subverting the government. Understandably, a lot of people are extremely tense going into this political uh, vortex. And I think we should uh, expect any kind of uh, incident or provocation, particularly if the U.S. and its uh, allies internally foresee any kind of resurgence of government support. Could or should the government have made more efforts to get away from that dependency on oil? Yes, I've been advising the government for over 10 years, and while... The oil boom was on and prices were over $100. I got very little 
listeners, even under President Chavez, he conceded the point, but uh, was not able to uh, move the government in that direction. Their efforts to uh, diversify the uh, oil into chemicals and fertilizers and related fields, derivatives from oil, had only very limited success. The rest of it was uh, basically uh, politically motivated social welfare programs that had very positive impact on the uh, electoral results, but very uh, weak strategic benefits toward uh, diversifying the economy. What about the production of food? That was a, a big area before the Chavez government. Most of the food was imported. Surely that's made a big difference in the, the amount of exports, imports now, that they're growing a lot of their own food. I think Venezuela has always talked about diversifying their economy from the time they nationalized. The first nationalization that took place back in 1976, they talked about plowing the oil wealth into a uh, a self-sufficient agriculture. But when I investigated the issue, I discovered that many of the so-called farmers were taking loans, interest-free loans and actual grants, turning them into real estate purchases. The great majority of so-called agriculturalists uh, would build a silo, which they didn't use, and then uh, invest all the funds into uh, buying apartments and constructing uh, luxury homes and importing beef from Colombia across the border. And that... uh, provided some kind of appearance of agricultural supply when, in fact, it was um, more or less imported cross-border purchases, bribing the National Guard that was in charge of the border uh, to look the other way while the uh, cattle was uh, uh, moved across the border. Now, the problem with uh, Venezuela is that there is very little discipline at the political and administrative level. There's a a great deal of uh, ineffectiveness of government. There's one thing is to uh, outline a perspective and even design a plan and even allocate the funds. And then there's very little follow-up to make sure that the plan is implemented. And that goes for the capitalist government that preceded Chavez as well as the uh, Chavez government. Venezuela is largely a consumer society. It it doesn't have a real productive ethos. The workforce is not disciplined. The bureaucracy is very parasitical. And the uh, entrepreneurs live on handouts from the state. It's not simply uh, public inefficiency. It's private parasitism. They live on subsidies from the state, protection from the state, Uh, interest-free loans, uh, low-interest loans from the state. They uh, import rather than produce. So it's very difficult to think of Venezuela moving ahead with capitalists that are uh, essentially parasitical and with uh, bureaucrats that lack uh, a flair for innovation and, and production. So uh, the, the human material in Venezuela is very difficult to move forward, and it's the problems that 
are in Venezuela today, uh, the ones that are internal rather than uh, results of the behavior of uh, oil prices. This is a very difficult society to overcome bottlenecks and shortages. So uh, I think uh, Chavez did the best he could and put a very progressive turn on this economy, converting a lot of the oil revenues into social programs, housing, free housing, free health, etc. And this was a positive step, but little attention was put into converting the oil revenues into productive activity, diverse economic activity, which could cushion the fall in oil prices. So this is a dilemma that faces Venezuela in the past and in the present, and unless there is some dramatic changes in the future. Is there likely to be impact of the new government in Argentina? In Argentina, I think we're going to have a very explosive combination. Uh, you have the accumulation of a very substantial social programs over the last decade, especially uh, wages, uh, increases, pensions, family allowances, health plans, etc. And now you have an extreme free market economy coming to, f- uh, to the fore with the uh, newly elected uh, Mauricio Macri government, which promises to devalue the currency and include some very f- harsh fiscal adjustments, which means cutbacks uh, in social programs and social spending. The country is very polarized. The electorate is almost 50-50 divided. The margin was 2% that the government won by. I think if Macri attempts to use the executive decrees to dismantle the welfare program and the, and the social and income gains, he's going to run into an extremely well-organized working class. The Argentine working class is very substantial. It's about 35% of the uh, industrial workers. I mean, 35% well-organized, very capable of organizing general strikes. And if Macri goes against the Congress, which is the legislature is in the hands of the opposition, and Macri has a team of economists that are extreme free marketeers, extremists in every sense of the word, there's going to be a very short honeymoon period. And as soon as he starts dismantling the program, freeing the human rights military rulers who uh, murdered thousands of people, uh, as soon as he tries to uh, attack the uh, uh, alignment of Latin America with the uh, other Latin countries and turns and embraces Wall Street, the United States, Israel. He's going to run into a lot of difficulty. I would predict that within six months we'll, have, we'll see major turmoil in Argentina. I don't think that the, the right turn of uh, the electorate means an endorsement of these extreme policies. I think Argentina will become a very turbulent and unstable country and that Macri's plans to set up a free market paradise for capital is going to 
run into a great deal of hostility. Now, he may resort to repression and call in the military and, and police, but that will lead to even more severe conflict. So I, I think you'll see three things happening in sequence. One, the introduction of a wholesale assault on the welfare programs of the government. Secondly, I think that will detonate a, a whole uh, chain of major protests, which in turn will lead to uh, authoritarian uh, rule by executive decrees. And, and I think this is the uh, scenario that I see unfolding. Do you see any impact for Venezuela of this victory in Argentina? There is a certain right-wing wave that is taking hold in Latin America. You saw the uh, beginnings of that in Peru with the uh, Umala, who came in as a left nationalist and then embraced the uh, mining uh, free market policies. You saw it with Cartes and the ousting of the uh, liberal left President Lugo. Uh, in Paraguay, and uh, you see now the uh, Neto in Mexico, who's a fanatical free marketeer handing over the oil companies to the multinationals. You see uh, the uh, right-wing government in uh, Colombia, uh, especially the winning of the uh, mayoralty in Bogota, the capital of the uh, country. You have the weakening of the... uh, Brazilian uh, center-left government of uh, Dilma Rousseff. And in other words, uh, the U.S. and its right-wing allies are on a certain role. Certainly, uh, this uh, context is not favorable to Venezuela. The bombings and shootings in Paris and the aftermath. I think what's happened in France is the militarization of French society and its extension throughout the European Union. I think the tragedy of the shooting by the Islamic terrorists is being used by the uh, the political elite, which has been living in in terrible recession for over eight years, that this is serving to distract public opinion from the failures of capitalism into thinking that the problem is not economic, it's military. And I think this uh, use of terror against terror, the declaration of a state of siege and the suspension of constitutional freedoms is a form of terrorism. And terrorism against terrorism uh, is going to adversely affect the uh, French society and French Politics. Let's remember that uh, Hollande's adoption of uh, legislation and policies uh, adversely affecting workers and and promoting business was not a favorable policy. It wasn't a a policy that was uh, embraced by the majority of French people. Now he's trying to foment what he calls national unity around war policies. And, of course, the bombing of the Middle East and the war in the Middle East is only going to create more refugees. It's going to create more enemies, and it's not going to solve any of the problems in the Middle East. And it will create greater problems in France. So I think French society today is in uh, in a very big period of 
regression. Regression in civil liberties, regression in economic terms, regression in terms of its social welfare program. I think that the French lead is going to uh, uh, result in similar consequences in Italy, Spain, and in uh, England. And I, I think this is part of a right turn in policies which sooner or later I think will exhaust the patience of the majority of people there. But for now, for the next year or so, I think we're going to live in a more authoritarian, repressive, and uh, militarized world. What about the situation at the moment in Syria? I think Syria is in turmoil. It has no uh, visible exit. The U.S. wants to oust Bashar Assad, who is the only one holding back from the uh, uh, terrorist Islamic groups taking over and fragmenting the country like uh, as happened in Libya when the U.S. Uh, ousted Gaddafi. They turned it into a, uh, a free-for-all for terrorists and, and uh, extremist groups, uh, which then uh, multiplied all over sub-Sahara Africa and created millions of refugees. I think the Libyan model of uh, invading and destroying, bombing, and uh, fragmenting a society is not the way to go. The wars are polarizing, unfortunately, in a way that is not favorable to people that begin uh, believe in secular, democratic, and in the egalitarian societies. What we're seeing essentially is militarism, extreme polarizations, Unfortunately, it's shaping up between imperialism and Islamists, and, and this isn't a very appealing alternatives. It's a very good market for the arms manufacturers. Well, yes, and it's, uh, it's certainly benefiting colonial societies like Israel, which uh, foments these kind of conflicts because they use it to justify the dispossession and the brutalization of the Palestinians. Uh, and their counterparts in the United States, the uh, so-called Zionist movements, have certainly been in the forefront supporting these wars and, uh, and the militarization of U.S. policy. But for the rest of us, I think it's a very dismal time. Uh, we are hoping that uh, we could use the elections as a favorable moment to raise these issues. But unfortunately, the Democratic Party... Uh, catches these internal dissidents who raise uh, positive issues in, but keep the uh, opposition in the Democratic Party. When they lose the primaries, they turn around and endorse the warmongers and Wall Streeters who are nominated. And who's likely to be the front runner for the Republicans? The Republicans are a bizarre lot, people that want to... Uh, jail and expel 11 million immigrants. They want to uh, end uh, Social Security and pensions and uh, introduce uh, a highly uh, regressive type of uh, a welfare program for the rich while uh, impoverishing the vast majority of people. It's a jump back to the 18th century. And that was Professor James Petrus from Bingham University in New York, Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus. 
speaking from his home in New York, and that was actually a week ago. I meant to play that last week, but I had a call from a listener who said she was glad that I'd put the wrong one on because she actually hadn't heard the first one, so now she's been able to listen to both. That's about all I have now, but we'll have a couple of community announcements, and tonight there is no Jonathan. Not sure what's going on there, but we have the radioactive show for you in lieu of Jonathan. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. certainly continue keeping on here at 3CR. It'll be 40 years next year and I was just talking to someone before about different things that they've got planned for next year. There's lots and lots happening. Keep tuned for knowledge of all that in the new year. That is all for me for today. I will be back at 4 o'clock next Tuesday. Two more programs for the year for me. And then it's um, a bit of a break. So I'll say bye for now and stay tuned for the Radioactive Show. Bye for now.